everybody, and welcome back to the Rogue Agronomist Podcast with Kyle from Stall Agronomy. And today our guest is Dr. Kurt Livesey of Dynamite Ag. Join us as we talk about some agronomy topics along with some of our consulting background. And Dr. Kurt also talks a lot about his hemp and CBD experiences and his new product, Pixie Dust. All right, so I'm here with Kurt Livesey, which took me forever to figure out how to pronounce. So. <laughs> Just like everybody else, it's okay. <laughs> So, Doctor Doc, we're just gonna start calling him Doc. He, I don't think you like it too much when I Doc said that. Kurt, Kurt is good. Kurt's fine. <laughs> so, Kurt's here. We're gonna talk about oh, all kinds of fun stuff. Whenever I pull up my iPad and I'm actually prepared for this and don't hit my microphone, but <laughs> I was on I was on the uh, the Scoop podcast right before this, so I had to. Uh, oh, it's been a nightmare day of phone calls and all kinds of other things going on. So. Um, do you do, do, do so? You work with Kip Kohler's, so you do consulting for how many guys across the U.S.? You know, it varies. We are my business model, I guess, is a little bit different. Um, I take phone calls from all over the U.S., and actually, I've got some growers I work with in you know Canada and even in Nigeria. Uh, we do some some pro bono stuff down there, but really, the model is kind of when people call, we have a couple different options to go with, which is um sort of the independent consulting side and or we've got a product side a product line so i've i I never double dip i don't feel good about you know writing recommendations and then selling somebody something so i just try and sit down with the grower and figure out you know what their unique problems are and how to best address those sometimes it's with products sometimes it's just you know one-on-one consulting and you know it can be a whole range of different things yeah and i think the, the biggest struggle I ran into getting out of retail, um, I always get asked this, what's your biggest struggle going from retail to this? And mine has been, I've always been in that training of, we try to fix things with products. And I was never that guy. Um, <clears throat> but I've, I've had to kind of take that completely out of my mind because now it's not like I'm not selling products. We, we're just looking at the problem and trying to fix it with whatever's going to fix the solution for guys. Uh, sometimes it is products, which, yep. which can be an interesting double-edged sword for me a little bit. I mean, we do sell Pioneer Seeds. So when I make a recommendation for Corteva chemical, like Instinct or, you know, Resicor or anything like that, I get that label of, oh, you're just doing that because you're a Corteva guy. And I'm like, well, the last guy I talked to, we recommended, you know, Corvus or whatever it is, because that's the best product for that guy. It's not, it's not because we have an affiliation with Corteva where I want you to use Corteva cash. It's, uh, it's more of, we're just making the right product for the right acre. And that's, it's a struggle when you still, you know, I'm, I'm as independent as I can be, but you know, if I didn't have the seed income, we wouldn't have a business. So uh, the one thing, I guess I kind of looked at you, we, uh, we do share somewhat of a podcast name because I think yours was like, (laughs) yours was the rogue something. Yeah, I, I, well, it's not really the podcast. I haven't podcasted in a while, but this is just the tagline on the website is the rogue agronomist for misfit farmers. And our, <laughs> the, the sort of following that we've built up over the years, I call my misfit farmers because they're people who are doing it a little bit different than the neighbors are. And if you ever see the logo on the, the Facebook group we've got, it's three sheep headed one way and then a black sheep with a party hat heading the other way. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. And mine was, it was kind of rooted in my background in, uh, so my first two years was working for Pioneer in the seed production side in my hometown. And so we had rogue corn plants and then I left the retail world. So I kind of went rogue. And then, you know, then I made a Star Wars joke to somebody at a mag or a newspaper once and then it turned into the tagline of stall love Star Wars. So <laughs> I'm like, uh, I'm a nerd, but not that kind of nerd. <laughs> Like, I don't really like Star Wars. I think I own every episode, but I maybe watched them a handful of times. But <laughs> I think I stopped watching them after the original three, or maybe we watched, you know, one of the new ones. And I was like, no, this, this isn't like the old good ones. Yeah. I always tell my wife, if I had kids, we would start them out on four five and six. And then yep. that'd be the way we would do it. So then they actually got the same, uh, basically the same way that we watched them. Um, so where so you got your doctorates from Iowa? Yeah, I, I, this is going to rub people the wrong way, but I've kind of made a career out of doing that. I like to tell people that, uh, there's better agronomy info that comes out of the university of Iowa than out of Iowa state sometimes. 
Yeah, they said, wait a minute, <laughs> Iowa doesn't have an ag program. And I said, exactly. At least they're not making wrong recommendations. <laughs> so I find that uh, unfortunately, all too often, and I pick on Iowa State because I'm a Hawkeye, but there's there's a lot of universities that are in the same boat where unfortunately they're just behind the times, you know, as far as making good ag- agronomic recommendations. And I find that to be particularly true when it comes to like plant fertility. I think a lot of, I read a lot of interesting good stuff on like weed science, but it really just seems like, you know, the, the agronomy side, when it comes specifically to like plant nutrition, plant health, soil fertility, it's like, Hey, let's go broadcast some NPK and call it good. You know, the same stuff we've been doing for a hundred years that I don't know, Kip used to always say, look, if all it took was more NPK to raise 300 bushel corn or hundred bushel beans, we'd already be there already. Mm-hmm. So clearly something is wrong with that model. Yeah, and I, I don't disagree at all. You know, they updated their tri-states this year, um, and we've been working off of those. I have to work through them because with nutrient management planning stuff, Wisconsin, we're, we're stuck with 120 parts per million of K and 25 parts per million of P. And, you know, when I got a guy that has really good corn ground and I can't, you know, legally apply more phosphorus to a 25 part per million soil it kind of stinks because we could really probably push more yield if we had more phosphorus on that soil but they don't you know when i asked i asked the place that i'm getting soil sampling uh, our analysis done i asked them about um base sats and I, i'm not a huge base sat guy but i have some people that really want to see that number they only give us a base sat for the entire field average. They won't give me a per sample base sat. So we, we might be shopping that around, which is funny because I went from no business with them two years ago to we did all our sampling and then went through them last year. And when I did the math based on how many samples they had submitted, we were a, a decent sized chunk of their business. So I'm like, yeah, we might go somewhere else, which really stinks. Looked, They're right next door. Into, have you looked into next level ag labs yet? <clears throat> No, not yet. Um, I've known a little bit about that stuff. Um, I haven't really looked too much into it. I actually had somebody from Extreme Farm or whatever talk to me last night. Um, the next level, that's uh, who's running next level now? Jason Shalai. And who's who's like the farmer guy that's really associated with them? Bodie? Bodie Kitchell? Okay. And then... Oh, was uh, Cal part of that group? Kevin Cal? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I missed what you were asking there. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I there's a couple guys that are in that group here. Um, I got a couple guys in the area that are in Dowdy's group. Um, I have a relative in Dowdy's group. I, I mean, I see what they're trying to do, but some of that, we have such a very specific growing area here. You know, the lake influence is big for us. It, it's kind of hard to say that somebody from two states or even four or five states away is going to be giving you really good recommendations up here. It's kind of hard to do. But um, yeah, on a lab basis, I, I like I said, I don't really believe a whole, I'm not full into base sats, but I do think that there's some merit to them. And the university will tell you that that's not the thing. Don't, they actually had out a paper a couple of years ago that said base sats basically aren't true you shouldn't even look at them so it's interesting to try to work with the university on stuff like that it's just we have we have somebody on nitrogen and they're trying to like do all kinds of weird things with nitrogen and yeah i i hate listening to that sometimes you just get kind of frustrated working with that um yeah especially the, the nitrogen recommendations are maybe i think the most the most egregiously off part of what i see from most universities you know i was i was one of the very first uh 360 yield center reps or dealers uh way back in like 2014 i think was when i first started working with them and you know i kind of really started my career in agriculture and on the independent side with the nitrogen research i did uh which is we were actually one of the first to look at you know taking nitrogen samples all the way across the row and looking at those individually rather than as a composite and demonstrating conclusively that when you're side dressing, it's not moving laterally, right? Like it's moving up and down, but it doesn't really just move side to side. And it it just, I mean, I've got growers that our goal is always to raise a bushel of corn on a half a pound of applied nitrogen. So, you know, no, that doesn't factor in soybean credits, organic matter, whatever. I get all that, 
but it just as like a base recommendation, I'm always shooting for, you know, if you're 200 bushel corn, we should be able to do that on a hundred pounds of applied nitrogen. It, you know, it, it ties into timing and placement and source and, you know, the four R's approach, the thing that the universities like to preach and not actually do any research on that supports or follow. Um, and with nitrogen, it's like, oh yeah, let's go out and put, uh, you know, 200 pounds of anhydrous on uh, in the fall and call it good, no matter where you're at. And I'm just like, how, how can you even like say that in the same sentence as for our anything. I, I don't know, but even, even the, you know, the one pound applied per bushel produced uh, that, that's uh, I'm seeing from a lot of universities and that's like, you know, super revolutionary because we brought it down from 1.2 pounds. It's, it's still so just like, so over a, too much, way, way, way too much. Yeah. I think our goal around here is usually around 0.8 and that's, we're not going to be pulling 300 bushel corn off of Southeast Wisconsin on a field average just yet. It's going to be a little while. I mean, our average, if you get a 220 average year, that'd be a pretty dang good year. Um, so at a 0.8 pounds per bushel, we're putting on, you know, about 160, 175 for most of those guys, depending on the year and how it's going, we do get kind of wet here. So there, there's often where we do supplement with our citrus applications just to add a little bit because we know what's gone. Um, but heavy clay soils, we do, so what you were doing with nitrate sampling, I was doing as well. We were basically laying a board. We would pull samples every three inches across. And as we started playing with that, different soil types, once we started getting into the heavy clays here, it holds nitrogen really well. It might not show up on the nitrate samples that there's a bunch there, but it doesn't go anywhere. If I get into some better drain soils, it's gone. I mean, it could show 30 parts per million of nitrates. And then we don't side dress and then the corn's short and, and once we get to, you know, ear fill. So it's, it's been kind of interesting to do that. I think a lot of people should do something like that where they actually pull samples across a row and understand where things are at. But I don't think a lot of people want to do that work because it's a pain in the butt to go down one foot and then go back in the same hole and pull a two foot core. And yeah, it's, it's not fun. <laughs> Nobody likes no, doing but- that stuff. But, but neither is wasting money that you don't need to spend. Yeah. And that's the big deal. I've always talked about with my guys and we weren't even doing one foot and two foot. I mean, we were only, I was using, um, there's a soil probe you can get called the, it's a KHS and it, you can get the 12 inch version and it's like a, it's like an alligator. I have one of those. Those are amazing. <laughs> it's the greatest thing ever. Right. Like I, so I would go, I would pull a 12 inch sample. You pop it open that alligator clamp, the jaw deal or whatever. And you just, just cut comes the right out. Yeah, yeah. We'd go zero to six and six to 12. And on that, I mean, so we weren't even factoring in the low stuff, but that's, that's why I feel like there's so much over application of nitrogen because that alone, again, not even taking that other stuff into consideration, we still can use so much less than what most people do. Yeah. And as an agronomist, so I, I discovered KHS samplers, uh, must've been about three, four years ago. And I liked them so much taking soil samples that I bought. I have a 12 inch and then I have like, they have like an eight inch Yep. Like and yeah, it's just, I pulled 6,000 acres of soil samples last fall with one of those. And it was just, it's almost easier than doing an automatic probe because I could pull samples just as fast as those guys do. And it was, I knew exactly where I was at. Um, it, I would actually keep the 12 inch with me and I just pull one probe every once in a while, pull it out. And then I could actually look at the probe and see how the soil underneath look. Sometimes soil samples are like the soil maps aren't hundred percent accurate. I've had that, oh, yeah. I don't know how many times where they're like, oh, it's a 12 inch steep this and it's got 18 inches of that. And then once you get down to it, you're like, no, there's there's 12 inches of this and then it's clay and that's it. <laughs> we, we're out here in Washington state and we've got a little uh, mini farm. And so we were out working in our, our glorified garden or our small uh, commercial produce, you know, out there. And we were digging post holes because we're actually putting in a pasture on the, like the west side of our property. And it's amazing. I'm, I keep wanting to get pictures of this and I keep forgetting, but it, the, the post holes that we're putting in, cause we're putting in four by fours and it's just like an, a general ag fence. So these are a space to like every 10 feet and literally every 10 feet you go, it changes. Like we'll have, cause this is an old timber soil, like an old Douglas fir timber. And you'll have like crazy thick organic matter. That's just jet black. And 10 feet later, it'll just be literally sand and rocks. And you go another 10 feet and it's a combination of the two and another 10 feet. And it's just like, man, this idea of grid sampling is, is so uh, hilarious to me, right? Because it's this, it's infinitely regressive. Well, 10 acre grids are good, but two and a half acre grids are better. Well, sure. But by that logic, then we should be, you know, ripping up the entire soil profile and sending it all in because God only knows where it's going to change. Yeah. I did the, the whole soil sampling thing has some interesting inherent assumptions built into it, no matter how you do it. 
Yeah, I mean, well, it's all based on an acre for a slice of soil is 2 million pounds. I mean, that's the only way we're getting these numbers, you know, and you're telling me clay weighs the same as seven inches of peat ground. Exactly. It, I do, when we do soil samples, I lay a grid, but then we move those points around based on yield maps, um, different tillage. We, I move them all over the place. So I always tell guys I do like a modified grid sample um, there's some people that do zone sampling. It's not too hor horribly different from what I do. It's just, uh, I know the fields and that's where we pull the probes and, yep. um, yeah, it's, there's so many people that pull soil samples that, you know, it, when I worked in retail, a lot of the guys that pulled the soil samples weren't the number one guys. It's not me pulling the samples. <laughs> it was always the guy that ran the sprayer or the guy that we didn't need in fall because he couldn't the run the guy. dry machine. Yeah. yeah the, the new the, guy, the most gullible one. To do. <laughs> so, you know, and you're supposed to be pulling in a specific depth because that's where they're calibrated to. And, you know, that guy's not pulling it at the same depth every time. And, you know, I had guys, I like to blend the samples before I send them in. I know that they, they probably do that when they get to the lab but I still do a little bit of a, you know, crunch it up and move it around a little bit. Um, but most of my guys, they just literally took what they sampled, dump it in the bag. They don't even have any excess. They just dump it in and then away it goes to the lab. So yeah, it's just, it's more, it should be more of an exact science than what it is. But I mean that most of the time when I worked in retail, the only reason we did soil sampling is because more often than not, the guy that we pull the soil sample on is going to buy the fertilizer from us. And that's why we did it. <laughs> <laughs> so lately all the ones around here i don't know where it is anywhere else in the midwest but we have one soil sampling lab here or soil analysis lab and they basically pull all the retailer samples because yeah. the retailers don't even want to pay somebody to do it themselves which is nice for me because i get people that want me to pull soil samples because i'm the guy doing it you know when you hire me i i go out and do it so it's been nice. Um, but at some point I told my wife, we're going to, it's going to cost us some money for a little bit. Cause we got to buy another machine and hire somebody to help them fall. Cause I can't keep up once we start getting over like 10,000 acres. Oh yeah. So, so you do, so you've done rice and cotton according to your website. Oh man, we've done that, a little bit. Of, I mean, corn, soybeans, wheat, rice, cotton, bamboo, bananas, cannabis, a little <laughs> bit of work on some giant pumpkins, some potatoes, you name it, we play with it. So what do you, what do you think about the CBD markets? Um, I had a couple guys that grew about 20 acres here. Um, and then I had a bunch of farmers the next year that were like, oh, those guys made a ton of money last year. We're going to do it. And I said, oh, don't, man. don't do it. Don't do it. And then last year I had the, one of the guys that helped uh, at the farm, he's uh, mid twenties and he's like, oh, this, this hemp thing is huge. I got to start doing that. And he's, he was full on and he's going to basically sell everything he owns and try to grow, start growing hemp. I was like, don't do it. Broke. He's yeah, going to go broke is what's going to happen. Yeah. I, it got too big. It was almost kind of like uh, when I was a kid, we still had an ostrich farm next to it or emu farm next to us. Yep. yep. Emus were like huge. That was, everybody's got to get into emus. And then two years later, all those guys went broke and. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's funny because I've been actively working in cannabis and that's, you know, both the, the legal marijuana side and the hemp side since 2015 part-time and full-time since about 2017. I moved out to Washington to do that. Now I'm actually transitioning out of that again and kind of refocusing on conventional commercial ag. It's interesting because having been in Washington state and seen like the maturation of the, of the legal marijuana market, and then how quickly, you know, with price compression and people falling away and going broke and, and producers, you know, just thinning down the industry. Um, however fast that happened here in Washington, which was quick, it's been magnified like 10x in hemp because in hemp, it's literally, it was became this like whole free for all deal and, you know, everybody can grow it. So I've done several hemp field days over the last couple of years and I literally spend the entire time begging people to not grow hemp. And I'm like, <laughs> if you're going to do it, here's, here's how to do it. Okay. And do it successfully, but you'd be better off just not doing it. I mean, CBD is great. In fact, I mean, I, I fully believe in the, the medicinal power and even the recreational power of the cannabis plant again. So you can get into the finer points of all the different cannabinoids and we can go down that rabbit hole if you want, but, but ultimately, right? Like 
there's a difference between saying, yes, this plant has some medicinal use or this plant is great and saying, let's go have every farmer in America dedicate acres to it because then you commoditize that to the point where, I mean, well, now is not a good comparison for say corn and beans because those have all been <laughs> up, but let's focus on what's happened the last five years in corn and beans yep. and seeing you know, how tight that market's been. I mean, it's just an absolute disaster on the, on the hemp and cannabis side. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that's a struggle I think we have as, as agronomists. I'm trying to get guys to be more, um, let's just say, broaden their horizons a little bit as far as what they're going to grow and what they're doing. And it, it's hard because there's no market. You know, we, anybody who finds a specialty market, you know, there's, there's some food grade around here where you can do food grade corn. There, there's literally like two guys that have that market and you know there's some food grade soybeans which there's acres every year of that available but not very many and once those are full then you're done and the the additional management that that takes it, it's a pain in the butt sometimes um and then we have some organic guys around here and there's one organic guy that i work with that is actually pretty good he tries there's a lot of them that just do it because they just want to be different but it's you can't even tell it's a cornfield because there's so much ragweed in it it's not even funny and I've, I've been trying to get the one guy to do flaming I said really I've had guys in in Illinois that did organic back 15 years ago when I was down there and like you couldn't even tell the difference between that and a commercial cornfield and what we really should be doing is rotary hoeing after you plant or when they're starting to come up and dragging and cultivating I said you should be flaming and they went out and bought an electric weeder now and a tine weeder and all this stuff. And, but they won't flame. I'm like, just flame. <laughs> Flaming is like the easiest thing you can do with organic. And it seems like that's the way that it really has to be. You got to get out there right before the, the corn actually has a growing point out of the ground. So B3, B4, flame it, and then come back, maybe cultivate one more time. And you should be pretty good and they won't do it. So then they're stuck with the electric weed zapper and they're trying to zap two foot tall giant ragweeds and three foot tall corn, you know, it just doesn't work. And yeah, it, organic, it, it just, any of these things, it takes extra work. And I think a lot of guys look at it as it's going to be the same as what I do. Even with when the hemp thing was big, I had a lot of guys that thought they were going to get into that and it's going to be just an easy thing. You just grow the hemp and then you harvest it. And I said, no, they're average, they're estimating eight to 10 hours, man hours per acre. And I said, do you really want to grow 20 acres of this? Cause that's like four straight weeks of you harvesting and doing all this other stuff. Yep. Like you're not going to have time for that. Nope. Not if you're going to do it right. Yeah. Well, and then we had a guy around here that did it. Uh, there's a, a smaller farm that grew like 20 or 30 acres and their market disappeared overnight pretty much. So then he turned it into a smokable powder and he's been selling that direct to the consumer, but you know, they're doing okay that way, but outside of that has a shelf life man i mean it's got a shelf life on it so you're like you're not gonna you're not gonna move 20 acres of smokable flour direct to consumer unless you're on the west coast and even then you're gonna have a hard time doing it yeah there's no hippies in wisconsin i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, so where did you, did you actually grow up in washington or you just grew out there nope, for... nope 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 i we i grew up in iowa i did my uh undergrad at wheaton college in wheaton illinois and then my master's at Illinois State, that's where I met my wife, and uh, PhD at the University of Iowa. And then we started the Dynamite Ag, which is my consulting company. And we, I mean, we started out actually in sales, and I got a little tired of just doing the sales game. And so I kind of moved from there into the consulting side. And then that was where we'd, we'd been doing really well. And that was why uh, there was a medical marijuana group that picked me up that really wanted me to work with them. Because quite frankly, they didn't want to work with your sort of stereotypical, you know, master grower, hippie stoner, whatever. And um, so they had me come out to Washington. And the problem was I've found in, in the specifically in the cannabis industry, uh, and I, this is a generalization, so I want to make sure I like give this disclaimer um, in perhaps an overgeneralization. But the problem in the cannabis industry in general is you have too many of the sort of like old school hippie stoner types. And then you've got like the rich old white guys. Both of them think they know everything and they no, no, none of them want to listen to one another. So I'm like kind of right here in the middle. Obviously, look at my hair. I'm a little hippie <laughs> myself, right? Everybody knows that. Um, but, but I come at this from an agronomy standpoint, like I have no preconceived notions about the plant. I'd never grown it before. I had no experience with it before. So I'm just coming in as an agronomist and like, 
trying to get these two worlds to blend or to get anybody to listen wasn't working, right? Like I'm giving them real numbers and they're just wanting the projections that they're getting from the other guys. And uh, so after a couple of years of that, they basically were, they came to me and they're like, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of out of money. We can't pay anymore, but we'd really like you to keep working for free. And I was like, I bet you would. Thanks, but no thanks. Um, so we, we actually transitioned out of that and back into doing a little bit of consulting. But, but the real thing I've mostly focused on actually is um, over the years, I've had the opportunity to help guys solve interesting problems across various crops. And so out of that, my uh, pixie dust fertilizer was born. And so we've really been focusing the last couple of years on uh, developing the pixie dust brand and expanding the product line. Yeah, that was actually my next question because I, so I, I obviously saw this stuff and I said, hey, you're the guy with pixie dust. Yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I want to know who does your marketing for you. You've Me. tried. <laughs> okay. <laughs> really? That's, that's, that, there's the, my, my, my PhD was not in agronomy. It was in interpersonal communication and research methods. So actually I, I'm, I'm the marketing guy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Cause you tried snake oil and fufu juice. Now give pixie dust a try. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I know um, there's a couple of guys I know back home that have tried it and they were big proponents of it last year. Um, I don't think there's even a dealer in Wisconsin. If there is, I think it's in like far Northwest Wisconsin. Um, we're growing. I mean, we're always, so I will say this, we are always looking for dealers. We did just, I'm really excited. I can say this publicly now. We did just sign a a national distribution agreement with BW fusion. So they are our national distribution partners and I'm over, over the moon about that. Um, I don't know if they have dealers up there or not either. So any place where they don't have a dealer and I don't have a dealer, we're always looking for new dealers. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> okay, awesome. <laughs> um, so, what's what's the whole thing with silica and, and pixie dust? I mean, it is it it's basically it's just potassium and silica, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of different uh, um, silica pairings out there. So counter cations for the silica anion, right? Um, I'm not a chemist and I'm not very smart. So when I was started formulating this, I had, I couldn't get calcium silicate to solubilize sodium silicate has its own set of issues. Um, most of the guys I deal with have high mag. So magnesium silicate wasn't really in the work. So, and I've been a, a real big believer in potassium for a long time anyway. Like most guys are just, especially when you get into like the H3A extraction that Jason talks about at next level ag labs, like we're, we're woefully overestimating how much potassium is, is actually out there and how much is available to the plants. So as I was working through all this and doing formulating, um, potassium silicate was the, the raw material that I settled on as sort of the base for most of the fertilizers that I build. Uh, and yeah, it's, it, we pair it with um, silica, which is, it's interesting because if you look at the history, right, of like how, what's considered essential plant elements, that was done back in the 1930s. And they literally would put plants in pots and withhold a given nutrient. So like, we're going to grow this plant without zinc. And if it does not complete its life cycle, so if it dies partway through, we can say, oh yeah, zinc is absolutely essential. And that's what they did. Well, when they came to silica, the, most of the plants could complete their life cycle, but there was this massive difference in like yield and quality. So they're like, well, technically it's not essential. And so it kind of got kicked to the wayside. But if you look at what's going on in like, you know, Brazil and uh, Japan, and there's, I've got some research out of like Germany, there's a lot of other countries that pay a lot more attention to silica and, and other crops too. Like rice is a big one. Sugarcane is a big one that has a big silica need, but we've just never paid attention to that. And I mean, things like, you know, corn or um, soybeans is, we saw great results this year with the foliar product on soybeans. So it, it really is just a, a really unique blend that I've concocted and it's all based on published university research uh one of the things that guys have a hard time wrapping their head around is they're like well why don't we go out and put this on a, a pint per acre or a quart per acre or whatever and i'm <laughs> like because i'm dumb and i only know what you know research says and we talk in molar concentrations and parts per million and so i've got a specific you know parameters that i have that i have to work within so it drives people nuts that everything i do is in you know, like either ounces per gallons or grams per gallon but that's, that's what's supported by the research that is out there. And so, yeah, we just, we've got a, a potassium cation with a silica anion and, and it's very available to the plant. It's been working really great. Yeah. And I, I could say that I, I, I didn't flunk organic chemistry in college, but it was the one I had that my last semester and I literally was like, Oh crap. I hope I graduate. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I had a really good at grade point average, but uh, organic chemistry was not my thing. Um, yeah. You know, I can understand it, but trying to trying to talk about it and, and develop like ideas based on organic chemistry, not my thing. 
but no, it's we've been blessed like i said because it's we, we get to play with a lot of interesting issues um and this actually i started down researching this path because one of my growers in the red river valley up in north dakota had like crazy high salt levels high ph and couldn't even get anything to grow so um i've been working on that for good grief i think that's we started that in either 14 or 15 maybe sure so, but we only commercialized it really in the last couple of years i like to you know really test the stuff before we before we get it out to market and um, I'm doing some stuff now where I've developed uh, a couple products that'll probably be available exclusively through BW Fusion. We've got some more that I've been working on myself. We got a seed treatment coming out, so it's just fun, man. I I, I guess I have like a some sort of ADHD or something where I really have trouble focusing, and I like learning and I like new and exciting things. So like I this has given me an opportunity to learn. I tell guys all the time, like, hey, if you have an interesting problem, you know, come come talk to me because I, I you know the co-ops, the extension agents. I'm not knocking them but their job is to like go help the most people possible. And most guys have that 40 acre patch, you know, or, 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 or 24 acre field off someplace else that keeps them up at night. Cause they just can't figure out what the heck is wrong with it. And that's the stuff that gets me excited. Right. So it's like, man, if you've got this problem, maybe somebody else does at the very least I get to research it and learn. And in the best case scenario, maybe I fix your problem and I can figure out how to commercialize it. So. Yeah. And I, I mean, I can understand where you got issues with guys that want it in pints or quartz per acre because that's that's the normal for micros. That's the yep. way we do it. That makes it yep. easy on my applicator because that's that's the struggle I have with a lot of products is you try to work with retailers on things and they're just whatever's easiest for the applicator. That's, you know, I, I had to deal with that in retail. Uh, I fought that for years and I got so tired of it that I got guys that want me to buy my own sprayer. And I'm like, I don't have $250,000 to buy a sprayer <laughs> and a shed and pay a guy to drive a tender truck for me and scout oh, my man. own fields along ahead of the sprayer. I'm like, I've done that game. I don't want to be that guy and have all that insurance and overhead. And yep. I'm like, I just much rather make the recommendations and you guys figure it out. And, but yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to see. So and I, I'm thinking with pixie dust, so there's, you have an infro treatment that's like a seed box treatment, right? Well, no. So actually we've got our, our infro, which is primarily for grasses right now. It's a 0027. I've actually just updated. I don't even think my website reflects it yet. We've updated that. Um, so it's a 0027 for infro application. And then we've got a foliar product that predominantly is on soybeans because of, we've got some other stuff in uh, with that specially designed for uh, it, I would call it a PGR like effect. So I'm not claiming a plant growth regulator, but it, it has some interesting effects on the plants. Um, and then I'm, I actually am developing yeah, a seed treatment right now that it will be out for testing beta testing this year. And hopefully will be available next year, depending upon what we see. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm looking at the website now, so there's an inferro application version. Yep. And then it says, doo -doo -doo -doo. I thought it was for like a dry plant box, but maybe not. Nope, nope. That'll be the, and even the, even the, um, seed treat that I'm working on will actually be, it will come as a powder and, and then we'll okay. put it on as a liquid. You know, I, I find, I don't like having guys pay for transporting liquid or transporting water because that's heavy <laughs> so <laughs> and expensive. So I do everything in dry powders. Uh, and that way you can, it, it's easier and less expensive for the grower to just mix it and to, and to customize it. Like I said, I, like if you're doing five gallons an acre and somebody else is doing 10, right? Like a pint per acre doesn't work because they're going to get half the concentration that you got. So by doing it in a powdered form, I can always say, Hey, this, this powder treats this many gallons, go apply whatever gallons you want. So uh, th that's why we've chosen to keep it the way that we've done it so far. Like the, there's something about Mary thing where it's seven minute abs versus eight minute abs. You heard, you ever <laughs> watched them? it's been a while <laughs> what happens if someone comes out with six minute abs no, no you can't get a workout in six minutes <laughs> <laughs> well you know it's funny because you're talking about trying to accommodate the uh like the applicator i mean yeah. i know some guys don't like it because you're just like oh the math is more complicated it's really not once you wrap your head around it but at the end of the day my job is not to to make the applicator's life easy or whatever my job is to provide a product that works and make yep. sure that the label reflects that and so I'm, dude i'm proud of the fact we've got like a 92% customer retention rate and i maintain the only reason the 8% left us was because they wouldn't do the trials and most of them <laughs> honestly will actually tell you that They're like well we forgot to you know we didn't actually test it and you don't see a big visual difference with this because what silica is doing fundamentally in the plant is it's strengthening the plant so 
yeah, if you get some lodging, this may show up. Otherwise, you you got to go dig roots before you see most of the impact because most of what we're doing is below ground, not above ground in terms of the any sort of a visual impact. So the people that will try it, pay attention to it, see good results. We were in Beck's PFR last year, saw phenomenal results there. We've got both products going into Beck's this year, and I'm really excited about that. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's the big reason a lot of guys like Ascend. So Ascend does show you a plant response. But when it comes to yield, at least in our experience and in the state's experience, has been that Ascend doesn't do much. Sure. I mean, as far as yield goes, we don't see a yield benefit from it. We might see more root growth. We might see maybe a leaf or two uh, as far as growth when we did it side by side. But other than that, I haven't seen much out of Ascend. But guys really like that visual thing. They, they want to drive down the road and see the difference. And sometimes you just can't do that. And I, I, I like when we have that happen, actually, where you don't see the difference. Yeah. And then the combine gets in and they're like, holy crap, where did this come that's, from? Dude, that's funny because mo like when guys send me pictures, I always tell them, like, send me pictures of your yield monitor because I love yield monitor photos, right? They're like, hey, here to the row, man. Like, here's here's where this happened. I had a guy call me from Iowa the other day. And he's like, I want you to know I'm a skeptic. You know, he's like, I... I <laughs> I made sure that everything we did, he said, I've ruled out everything I can except for your stupid pixie dust. And it was a foliar on beans. And he said, you know, up at the top of this ridge, he said, we didn't really see much, but he goes, there's a sand, it's a sandy hill. He goes, and going up that sandy hill, he's like to the row, it was like 20 bushels. And I said, well, let's think about this, right? One of the things you're doing with silica is silica uh, basically increases water use efficiency by decreasing transpiration. So it closes the stomata. And I was like, and I asked him, I said, was it a, a hot, dry year? And he said, yeah, it absolutely was there. And I'm like, well, then up top where you had adequate water, you know, and, and it, where it was a heavier clay soil, yeah, you're not going to see as much. And where the plant literally burned up on this sandy hillside, we made the water use more efficient. So we were able to, you know, retain more of, of that water that we needed it when we needed it. So there in extreme cases like that, you may see something, but ultimately we always look for the yield monitor data, not the visual data. Yeah, I actually have some guys that, you know, no matter what we do, we still get like 45, 50 bushel soybeans because it, it was really funny. I actually wrote, drove combine for a guy on one side of the road, 70 bushel soybeans. The other side of the road in August, they got an inch less rain. It just like it split the line right there. That guy averaged 50 across the farm. I mean, it's just that inch of rain in August made that big of a difference on these guys' farm. The guy's Absolutely. like, well, I don't know if you really helped me this year. I'm like, yeah, I did, but you just didn't get an inch of rain at the right time. <laughs> like, look yeah, at I mean, the neighbor that I work with. Control Mother Nature, right? I mean, short yep. short of having irrigation, there's not a lot you can do about that. Yeah, we don't have much of that in Wisconsin. Yeah. I, I grew up in Northwest <laughs> Indiana where there's a bunch, but not here. <laughs> so mm -hmm. It kind of sucks, but yeah, it'd be interesting. Um, we'll have to talk about maybe some trials or something. I I got a lot of guys that when we look at retail and I wrote a newsletter, it went out today. Um, we were, I was talking a little bit about, I said, seek out new products or seek out new practices outside of retail. Because when you're in retail, I mean, my experience with retail, and I, I'm not sure what you, you'll say to this, but my experience with retail is I, we had a relationship with X company. They sell X products. Um, you know, and then you, we have a relationship with Syngenta or whoever it was, that's the ones we kind of went with because that's where our margins were the best. Now, if X company doesn't sell pixie dust, then we don't want you to use pixie dust because, you know, we don't sell that or, you know, X company sells, you name the product and you really want to try something different. Well, that's what we don't sell that because, you know, that's not, it doesn't work. That's why we don't sell it. And that's why I keep telling guys, I'm like, you got to look, look outside for some of these products. I, I was looking at some of the Terra Max stuff um, the other day on PFR stuff. Yeah. Beck's Dude, they're great. Does a, yeah. Beck does do a good job with what they do. And Terra Max is something that to me looks interesting and no one around here as a retailer is going to carry that stuff. So I've been trying to get guys to, Hey, let's maybe look at some things here. I can um, tell you definitively Terramax will work. I'm not affiliated with the company. I'm okay. in no way, shape or form, but I know because one of the companies that I used to do a lot of work with had a product that was, it's an azosperil and Brazilins is what it is. If I, I hope I pronounced that correctly, <laughs> but dude, there is so much research, like independent university data from Brazil, from Europe on that particular strain of bacteria and nitrogen, you know, nitrogen fixing. Like it, I, 
it will 100% work. It's PFR proven. I recommend it to all my guys. The downside is usually you got to get it on and get it in the ground. I don't know if they've got a new extender on it or anything like that, but that has always been the hurdle I've faced in trying to get my own guys to use it because you got to treat it and plant it. And you know, it's not, it's not the convenient where, Hey, let's load up the planter and go do, you know, a 250 acres all at once or something. Yeah. And I, so I've had experiences with products like uh, for me, ethos, when ethos XB came out, I don't know if you know what ethos is. Nope. Not familiar so with that ethos one. is a, a bacillus strain that, FMC claims is like a fungicide for corn. Um, and we tried it over, I had guys are running capture LFR, you know what capture is. Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. Oh, so yeah. it's basically this the same thing, capture LFR with this bacillus strain in it. And it, it grows with the roots. You, you do see more, a better stand with this stuff. I mean, the guarantee, I, I don't even know what their guarantee is anymore. It used to be a thousand plants more if you planned it side by side and, and showed the difference, if there wasn't a difference, they give you like your money back. But yep. ethos is another Bex PFR proven thing where they showed like a nine bushel return and it's so many dollars per acre. And I tell guys about that and they're like, well, what about putting headline in for, I'm like, don't do that. No, geez. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, there's, there's so many of these products that get kind of put away. There's, I mean, FMC has a few of those and I think they're really good products. Um, but everybody just wants to sell you capture. When you look at ethos, sometimes ethos is actually cheaper per acre than capture is for whatever stupid wow. reason. But the only thing I didn't like this year, uh, there's a new fungicide Zyway. I don't know if you've seen that one. Zyway is claiming it's an FMC product. Also, they're claiming that there's season long fungicide control with an infrared fungicide application with this product. Yeah. That would be a, a it's a stretch claim to support. Yeah. I'm like that, that makes me nervous. <laughs> makes me nervous. I mean, you know, my, my problem with all this Kyle actually is uh, I was just in a little bit of a Twitter debate on this earlier and that is, and again, I'll step on toes here, but I'm going to say it anyway, because it's the truth. Guys got to learn to vary their, their modes of action, their chemistries. And I mean, that's true, whether we're talking herbicide or fungicide or whatever. And I'm sorry, but I mean, I love like your strobilians are, are great tools, but if that's the only tool you use, that's the equivalent of like trying to fix everything with a hammer. And I'm sorry, but if you took a hammer to my LED TV, I'm going to take the hammer to you because you've got to, you know, you've got to mix it up. You got to have other options. That's how we end up with, with resistance. So why wouldn't a guy look at something like this, like you're talking about, like the biological control and furrow and then go to something like a headline or whatever. I don't know. I, I just, I feel like we're companies are being driven to the point where they're having to make those claims like that. Right. Well, I have a hard time believing you're going to get season long fungicide control out of an infer. I'll just, I'll just say that I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm saying I'm skeptical of that being done, but if we start to, you know, layer modes of action and actually do good integrated pest management, we don't even have to make that claim. We don't have to worry about that kind of thing. Hey, I, sometimes I wonder if IPM is still a thing because nobody wants to follow IPM anymore. Well, it's really, really cheap. Don't. Just throw some insecticide in there and throw this in and, I've got um, my biggest struggle with soybeans. So we're, we're trying to manage water hemp in Wisconsin. We don't, we have some um, Palmer here, but not much, thankfully. Uh, but the water hemp we do have, it, it might as well be Palmer. It's about the same dang thing. Yep. Um, I've got a lot of guys that they're looking for premixes for pre, uh, pre applications or so they want the flexibility of being able to go early post. Well, if you're getting that flexibility, then you're in that dual Fomasafen deal. So you're, you're basically giving up your Fomasafen to have flexibility and then you can't come back with Fomasafen later because you're going to run in, you know, further North we are here. You don't have that ability to go above like 10 ounces. So then we're kind of stuck. Now you're Cobra or Liberty or something else. If you have Liberty resistant soybeans, which some guys probably about half of the Wisconsin doesn't yet. So you're kind of stuck with that. So I keep telling guys, take the freaking Fomasafen out of the pre-emerge, go out with, valor whatever and, and try to try to use those chemicals pre that you can only use pre because then that's giving you a different mode of action or a different side of action and then use those products you can only use post post and it's just it's a struggle to try to get guys off that easy button on weed control and it's it's the same thing with spraying fungicide you know you can't get guys talked into sdhis you can't get guys out of well i can buy generic quadris or quilt or whatever from whoever for this really cheap price so we're just using strobularins and triazoles and then we're trying to do broad recommendations for the entire farm because they're just like well if my neighbor says you get 25 bushel every time you spray fungicide and it's like the average on fungicide is like 
you're basically breaking even on it. So I had a guy send me a thing yesterday. Uh, I think it was a crop protection network put out and their data showed a, it was about a 60% chance of a return or a uh, return on the investment as in like you got broke even. Mm-hmm. But the way it looks, if you look at the chart, it's like, well, 60% of the time you get money back, you know, you're actually making money. And I'm like, no, 60% of the time you're paying for what you're, so there's 40% that it costs you money. And there's 60% of the time that you're just, you know, either breaking even or making a little bit. And they're like, really? Yeah. If fungicide on corn is not, it's not a, it's not a slam dunk. Like a lot of people want to tell you, and it's not a slam dunk. Like a lot of the chemical companies want people to realize. I mean, well, I just, you- I, t- I tell everybody all the time, Kyle, I'm like, look, there's, there is no product on the market that can actually increase your yield. And most guys <laughs> don't understand that's no, true. There's really not because the corn champs have proven, right? You got the Dowdies and the Hulas and all these guys, 600 bushel corn, 100 and 200, whatever bushel beans. And, but the reality is, is your, I mean, you're, you're a seed dealer. You know, this, the number, the, the, the highest yield potential you will ever have in the bag, the you open the bag, right? Because the, once it's open, you start suffering yield loss. So everything that we do is to try and minimize yield loss. Uh, so, so all these, pro, I, I, I tell you guys this, look, every product that's out there is like an insurance policy against a specific set of stressors. And if you buy an insurance policy that is herbicide, that is insurance against weeds. Guess what? If you had a perfectly clean field, theoretically, with no weeds whatsoever, and you spray herbicide on it, you don't get a return because <laughs> that wasn't going to rob you from yield. Therefore, that insurance policy was invalid. And it's a little bit of a backwards way of thinking about stuff, but it's the accurate way of thinking about it. And guys just, you know, like you said, they're all saying, oh, I get a yield bump when I put on my you know, headline prax or whatever. And it's like, that's not exactly how, uh, that's why economic threshold is a thing, right? When we talk about bug pressure, disease pressure, whatever. I'm just laughing because I, I had somebody, I did a podcast episode uh, a couple months ago about, and I, I said, this is the exact same thing you said about fungicides, that they're not gaining yield. They're, they're yield maintainers. They're not yield gainers. That's the actual quote I use. But I had somebody calling there like, oh, you're wrong. I'm going to fight you on this. I'm like, go ahead. But the science is there. It's, it's not, you're not gaining yield by using fungicide. It's just maintaining the yield that you could have lost. And, you know, they're saying, well, there's plant health benefits to fungicide. That's my, I have seen that a little bit where we do have a, a healthier plant that survives drought stress or something else a little bit better when we put fungicide on. Is that always the case? No. Are we always going to have drought stress later in the season? No. Yeah, that's the struggle. It's just like you're buying an insurance policy that you almost always, you pretty much are not going to need about half the time. And you got to kind of balance that in with how much your crop is worth. I mean, this year, your return on fungicide could be a lot bigger, but right. I, I think your return on increasing nitrogen rates or, or doing something else could be even better. Um, it, it just, it's depending on what our input costs are. And I, I, next year, it's going to be a really screwed up deal when we go from I'm making $200 an acre on corn in Wisconsin to we're probably going to have input costs match our corn price at some point here. So I think yeah. it's pretty close in most places when you start looking at what the price per ton did on basically everything. Um, that's, uh, it's it's nuts now i this is the only like really self-promoting super over the top thing i'm going to do but i will just point out the price of pixie dust did not change <laughs> how much are, what size are those bottles that come in oh the uh the pixie dust in furrow is 1200 grams okay <laughs> sorry see this is how you know you've been involved with <laughs> cannabis for too long you think in the metric system um it's like I'm empiricals yeah no it's so your your use rate on those is infra was 1.5 grams per gallon okay. so for most most guys i mean uh, this is obviously assuming you're running some sort of a starter program but most guys will be in the four to six range so even if you take that on the on the high side six times 1.5 is nine so nine grams an acre, 1200 divided by nine grams an acre is it'll do about 133 acres be what that would do. And if you drop it down to four grams, I want to say it's 200 acres. So it's somewhere between 130 and 200 acres, depending upon what your starter rate is. So that's actually really cheap because it's like $630 on your website. So yeah, that's actually, that's actually uh, higher than retail. I, this is a, my dirty little secret is I try and dissuade people from buying from me because <laughs> no, this is kind of cool. Like our no, I get it. Is, we, I have a, I have a dealer network. And so most of the guys that I work with are, you know, precision planting, 360 yield center, seed dealers, local agronomists. 
and I just, I really, I feel like that's an important part of the agricultural community and a part of the farm economy. And I got nothing against retailers. Well, I shouldn't say that. We, there's a lot of things we don't see eye to eye on. But my model has been, I want to support the people because a lot of those guys like either want to farm or they're farming small and they can't make enough money to do it. Like, you know, I, I grew up on a farm, but like we didn't, we weren't big enough to be able to do that full time and have that be our deal. So I wanted to take our product to market through this sort of like local distribution network. And even, you know, like BW Fusion, they are largely same thing, like farmer dealers um, or sort of the local, local rep. So we very much incentivize, like I said, the actual price on that. If you go through somebody local is 600 bucks, not 630. Um, I'd rather deal with, you know, a hundred dealers than a thousand customers. Cause I just want to make sure that we're, we're getting that, that actual like face-to-face -face interaction, that touch point in the community, that's local support in the community. So that's why it's, yeah, it's, it's less expensive through your local rep. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the way it should be anyway. Um, yes but that's not how seed business goes sometimes too. If you go direct to consumer, it's cheaper. So right. that's fun. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I'm, yeah. I'm sure you can relate. Yeah. It's really nice when you're the dealer and somebody's like, well, I could buy it online cheaper. That's freaking great. Yeah. <laughs> but no, that's, I mean, it's kind of what I want to talk to you about was the pixie dust stuff and, and why the hell you're in Washington state, but <laughs> well, the goal just so you know the long-term goal is to get back to the midwest and the, the iowa illinois area i don't know when that's going to happen but that is the long-term goal no i there's people that wonder why the heck i'm in wisconsin when i grew up in indiana isn't there some really nice farm ground down there i'm like have you ever been to northwest indiana i was like not where i'm from this is about the same as what i grew up with you know we <laughs> I wasn't in the good side of the Kankakee Marsh. The, the guys yeah. that were on the Kankakee Marsh, that's some really good ground over that way. But oh, by yeah. us, it was rocks and peat marshes and all kinds of crap. Yeah. Well, where I grew up in Iowa, everybody thinks Iowa is flat. But in the southeast corner of the state, it's rocks and hills and trees. And anything smaller than 80 acres is just a food plot for deer. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, I actually consider the Iowa City area home, like where my wife and I both did our, our grad school. So, I mean, we lived in, uh, in West Branch for about five i guess it was about well yeah it would have been about five years we lived in west branch um and my wife's originally like i said from illinois so we'll either end up somewhere back in the eastern iowa corridor or central illinois who knows we'll see where's she from in uh, illinois uh bloomington normal okay yeah i actually clean county it's a really yep. good farm ground <laughs> yeah i interned with uh Gromark and oh, yeah. i was i lived in normal and yep. you know where Gromark is in bloomington so yep yeah my territory was basically state straight across uh illinois all the way straight north into wisconsin that's where my uh territory i handled was so i got to live in bloomington normal for three months and i think that was enough <laughs> oh yeah it's i said nice i really town. Liked bloomington normal i really liked bologna yeah it's the only thing is if you want anything that's not in bloomington you got to drive like an hour and a half to two hours to get what you want Oh yeah, but when there's like nothing in, around there. When you grow up in Van Buren County, <laughs> Iowa, you got to drive an hour to an hour and a half to get anything anyway. Yeah, that's true. No, my wife, I, I married an Illinois girl. She's from uh, actually, she's from Naperville, so oh, yeah. she's she's a Chicago girl. Um, right, right near Wheaton. That's the suburb yep. next to Wheaton. Yep, I wrote down Wheaton when you said that. I was like, yeah, yep. I know where that is. No, I and I grew up near Plymouth, Indiana. Okay, so. I actually know where that's at. Believe it or not. Okay. Yeah. Some people do. I, usually I say South Bend is I'm like, oh, I'm from 20 miles Southwest of South Bend. Yep. And I got a bunch of relatives that you might actually know in that area if you deal with any kind of farmers of size. So, but um, yeah, no, it's been interesting to have you on. Um, how long have we talked? An hour almost? Yeah, almost. Jeez. All right. Well, thanks, Kurt. We'll, uh, we'll talk after, but thanks. Uh, I'll stop the recording now. <laughs>